Hello, all you would-be reinventors or reinventors. I'm going to assume you are reinventing. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am really, really excited to bring to you a friend of mine who's been in the fashion business for a very long time and has recently pivoted into doing some wonderful, really inspirational things on Instagram and really using her art during the pandemic. And so I'm going to call this Pivoting in a Pandemic, um, this little sort of sub-series to what we're doing because a lot of you have that problem and we have to figure out who are we as we come out of this mess and how do we want to live our lives? How does it change what we do? How do we feel more like ourselves as we move forward? And I am so lucky to have reconnected with Rebecca Moses. She's a designer. You probably know her name. She and I intersected so many times throughout our careers. She was living mostly uh, in Italy, working in Italy, very famous um, designer working. uh, She went to school with Michael Kors, who's a good friend of mine. And she ended up running Jenny, um, which is the... um, the, the, what do you want to call it, clothing empire that Gianni Versace had started. Um, He left and she ended up taking that over in Italy. And she had married a couple times, ended up marrying an Italian, ended up moving over there. She was a girl from New Jersey. What a story. And ended up living there, raising her children there, um, having just this amazing European life. And um, then in uh, 2010, she came back to the States. Her husband had uh, gotten sick and died within uh, six months in 2010. And she's written a book and she's also done some fantastic things though, moving online and moving her art online. And I encourage you to go to Rebecca Moses uh, Official which is her Instagram page. And you will see what we're about to talk about. She has during the pandemic, as she says, she, the way we exercise, she paints and she became a, you know, full fledged illustrator. When she came back to the state, she decided she'd done enough clothing. And during the pandemic, she started talking to women who uh, were locked in at home or who were frontline workers. And she started painting them. You have to see it. Um, it's quite amazing. She painted a lot of nurses. Um, a lot of these pieces are ending up in museums and are going to be on tour at hospitals and things like that. But she's just in such an amazing creative spirit and really has a way of starting with your story and how do you tell that story and which way are you going to go with it? This runs a little longer, so spend some time uh, with us. It's, this is not our usual half hour. I just couldn't cut her off because she's so brilliant and so smart and so inspirational. So I am pleased to bring you the wonderful Rebecca Moses. Here she is. So Rebecca, I'm so excited that we have you for this podcast. This is wonderful. Well, I'm so excited to be here, Leslie. It's an honor. So Rebecca, let's talk about your whole history first so that people understand where you're coming from. And then we're going to talk about how you pivoted in the pandemic. And let's talk about how the heck did you get into the fashion business? And what was Uh, your beginning? Was your family in the fashion business? What was your background? 
Okay, so I came, I was, I was born in New Jersey, um, raised in Northburg, New Jersey, right across the river from Manhattan. And I grew up in a, in a hardworking family. My father worked in construction. My mother was an administrative assistant. Um, went to public schools, high school, grammar school, public. Then um, I knew from a very early age I wanted to be a fashion designer. Um, I would say maybe my first sketching started when I was about 14. Um, and I decided that I wanted to go to fashion uh, university as soon as possible. So I skipped a year in high school and uh, doubled up on all my courses and graduated at 16. And I went to FIT here in New York City. Um, I studied there for two years. Um, I got an associate degree. Um, they had just instituted the bachelor degree upon my graduation, but I was so anxious to work and got my first job for a 7th Avenue company called Gallant International, who had the license for Pierre Cardin Coats and Suits. So they hired me. I was a babe, 18 years old. And um, my first job assignment was uh, to go to Paris to see the couture of Monsieur Cardin and uh, come back and start my first season. That's how it all began. I am taking out my smallest little violin for you. <laughs> that is uh, unbelievable. That's incredible. And did you speak French and did you no, know anything? No. Oh my God, how incredible. I love yeah. it. What it a was story. Quite, quite crazy, but I, I made sure to make my outfit perfect for Parisian uh, Couture Week. And uh, it was a it was a fairy tale. Um, wow. It was a fairy tale. And um, I stayed there for three years. And then I thought I was ready to start my own business. <laughs> oh, the cockiness of being young. <laughs> but you did. Is that when you started? That's when I started. Um, I started um, a small collection. A um, friend of mine gave me a space over his store to hang my hat. And that began the road of the sagas of being a young designer in New York City and um, got tons of press along with my other friends like Michael Coors. Michael and I always joke that um, we, our business was so small, we had to do fabric appointments together so we could meet the minimums. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was, he's an old friend of mine and he, uh, he actually did my wedding suit. It wasn't a uh, dress when I was at Vogue, he sketched it out on a napkin. And I was like, yes, I can't do that regular old dress thing. Always such a down to earth, lovely person. Oh, the best, the best. We laugh every time we see each other. We say, do you remember when? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, I went through a lot of, um, it was a it was a colorful life in those days, you know. It was the early '80s. Um, life was wild in the '80s. Um, we worked like crazy. We partied like crazy. Um, but it was challenging um, because none of us had the money or the funding that we really needed, nor the business experience to really manage a business, nor the dream partner that so many designers look for. 
So um, it went up and down. I had a lot of trials and tribulations, um, you know, partners, lawsuits, unions. I mean, it was all what they don't teach you in fashion school. <laughs> so, um, but I held on and, you know, it's like a rodeo show um, and you got to hold on to that, that bull, you know, and you got to make sure you can really survive. And it was, it was nothing that I could ever imagine or, or wrote about, you know, I just never really, when I look back in hindsight, I, I think, my God, I, I wanted this so badly that I could get through the wars, you know. And then I, one day um, I went to Italy to see a factory, a, a group of factories, actually. And I met my soon-to-be husband. Um, and... Uh, Mind you, I have been married twice before, uh, not successfully, sadly, and um, came back, met, a, met one of my factory owners and um, fell madly in love. Um, we, um, we didn't expect this to happen, but we fell in love. And he lived in Italy, had a factory of textiles, and I was here in New York as a struggling, well-known <laughs> designer. Um, and we had to take a decision. How would we move forward? Um, and I decided to go to Italy. Uh, it, it sounds like such a simple decision, but it was a very big decision for me. I mean, New York was my life. My family was here. My friends were here, my lifestyle was here, my business was here. Um, even though I was struggling, I was respected, I knew what I had here. But, you know, maybe because I didn't have success in my personal life, I just felt that it was time to maybe give a new life a shot. And um, I moved. Um, I moved not knowing the language. I moved not knowing if my relationship would be a long-term relationship or not. I knew I moved not even knowing what kind of, how would I work again? I mean, I always had my own business. What would I do in Italy? You know, it was a lot of unasked, un, unanswered self-questioning. <laughs> so, um, how I old were you about then, Rebecca? Were you in your thirties or still in your twenties? Thirty. 31, I believe. Okay. 31. Yeah. And um, I moved there. I moved not to Milano. I moved to a, a very small village in, um, in Piedmonte, which is in the northwest corner of Italy. And um, I, for the first year, I did not work. I, like, tried to, like, learn how to live like an Italian. Um, and then one day, a very dear friend of mine from Hong Kong came to visit us. Her name is Joyce Ma. She's a legendary retailer from Hong Kong and a real fashion icon in the world. And she came up to have lunch. And even though I was not working, I was painting, designing every day. I, I 
need the creative process every day in my life. It's, it's like some people exercise, I paint, I create. Um, and she came up and she said, give me these sketches. There were sketches that I had worked on. And she said, I want to take these down to Milano and show someone. And um, I said, who? She goes, I don't want to say anything. Just give me these sketches. She went down to Milano and had a meeting with a lady named Donatella Germbelli, who was the owner of the Jenny Group, which was designed by um, Don, uh, Johnny Versace for 18 years. Um, and um, she, I got a phone call the following day that Mrs. Germbelli uh, would like to meet me. So I went down to Milano and I met her and she said, I really love what you do you have something that hits my soul. And I said, wow, that's, that's, a hand, that's a mouthful. I'm honored, you know? And she said, I would like to, to, for you to do a capsule collection for me. Mind you, Johnny was still designing there. And uh, so I did a small capsule collection. And then a couple of months later, she uh, called me and she said, um, I want you to come meet me again. I went. She said, I want you to take over the full contract. She and Johnny had parted ways. And uh, I was like, really? And so I took over all of collection, all of couture, all of all the licensing. And she made me the creative director. And that was a huge turning point. And that was called, because I'm trying to remember, that was Jenny? That was Jenny. And yes. how did you spell that? Just so I can look it all up. Yes, it's G-E-N-N-Y. Okay, G-E-N-N-Y. Jenny, in, okay. just to give you some, some hindsight on that, uh, Jenny was one of the largest fashion groups. You have to understand, this was before Bernard Arnault and LVMH and, you know, um, you know, all the major big acquisition groups. Jenny was uh, about a $400 million business when they hired me. So we're talking about one of the biggest brands in Italy. So for this young American unknown girl to the European world to get a job like that, it was really quite unheard of. And, and Gianni Versace after that went off and did his own thing? Well, Johnny was there for 18 years. 18 years. And um, he, his, he, he had started his own business um, many years before that. So his business was so hugely successful by then. I mean, he was, it, he was so famous that he really, it was time for him to leave Jenny. I mean, Jenny was not a... Um, um, a, uh, how can I say, uh, um, you know, it was a huge job, but he had his business. So he had left, uh, they parted ways and I was given the job of, you know, heading it all. How did you make that transition? Was that insane? It was, it was, <laughs> that, it was that's it was, unbelievable. Yes. It was really quite fascinating. Um, it was more than fascinating. It was <laughs> life altering. Uh, first of all, I didn't speak any Italian. 
and I, um, <laughs> you know, it, you know, Italian is a is a is a formal language that you know you have to learn the formalities and the, you know, there was so much to understand about, you know society, how to act, how to speak, then to understand the traditions, or sh should I say the, you know, for example, I'll give you an example, um, like one of my first collections there, um, when I showed her the sketches, she said, oh, Rebecca, we can't do black because black is a color of mourning. At, this was 1992. <laughs> and I was like, but black's a really important color. <laughs> And then, you know, did she go along with you? Did she listen? Was she a good boss? Well, well, she said to me, well, Rebecca, why don't we do this? We'll do it for the runway, but we'll sell dark blue. And I was like, um, okay, you know, and then, and, and, you know, it ended up being our number one color, but, you know, it was just mentality, even though Italy in those days was, you know, and still is, you know, the, one of the, the great fashion capitals in those days, this was pre-globalization. Um, you know, there were still boundaries, there were still rules, there was still um, a European tradition. Um, there were hours of the day. Um, you know, for me, I remember her once asking me, what hour of the day would you wear this? And I looked at her, it was like, depends what you do. And I, I didn't mean it condescendingly. Amazing. You know, Amazing. But I remember those kinds of things too, because I grew up at the same time in the fashion business. It's so hard to believe all that is gone. I know. And in a way, I kind of miss it. You know, it, it's kind of funny. I wish there were some more rules and regulations because in some ways it, it kept fashion in its in its certain, I don't know, with certain traditions. Um, but it, it was, a, it was, we were going to go through a groundbreaking revolution right now. It, when I was there, 1992, Tom Ford had just gotten to, um, well, he didn't get, he was at Gucci, but he, Richard Lambertson was the designer there, the creative director. Then Richard decided to go back to America and then Tom got promoted. Um, so there were other Americans at that moment infiltrating Europe. And it was a revolution going on. And, and you know, with the internet and with a whole new wave of communication, the world started to change. And globalization really good, bad, and indifferent change the world. So you were there for 20 years. Was it um, mostly with Jenny? When did that end? Okay, so I worked at Jenny for five years, um, which was my, my contract. And then three years into my contract, I decided to start a small little collection of what I say, knitwear, um, because I've always loved knitwear and I always kept it out of the exclusivity of my contract. And um, I decided to create this kind of new approach to cashmere and um, decided that I wanted to make cashmere more of a lifestyle, more sexy, more colorful, 
um, really break all the classical interpretations. And um, and I thought I would just sell about maybe three stores. Um, so I I just I called upon my girlfriend Teresa Heiner who. Um, had just given birth to her second child <laughs> and uh, said to her, well, why don't you work with me on this? You can work from home. Uh, just come over for the market and uh, we'll call it a day. We'll manufacture the goods, ship the goods and, you know, making it very I dumbed down, like it'll be a little side thing for us. Well, we opened the collection and uh, Bergdorf Goodman took exclusivity in New York with a full boutique the first season. We opened up 15 countries the first season, um, 70 doors, um, 70 stores, I should say. People were, I, I had no idea what I did was so groundbreaking. And um, I had to really set up a company. And um, so I, had the company for eight years and then I decided to bring in partners which you know I always say the hardest thing in life is to find a good partner um I always said you know it's easier to find a husband than a partner because at least with and I I didn't have such success until I met Giacomo with my husbands was that you you can't date a partner you can't see how they chew their food and, um, you know, when you have a partner, you, you know, there's, there's not a dating time. So you really don't know who you're getting into bed with. And unfortunately, the partner that I chose ended up not being the perfect partner for me. Um, and I decided that I would rather not have the brand operating at that time and to close it. And uh, it was a crazy decision, but it was a decision I felt comfortable with. I didn't want, I wanted to keep my brand purity and my reputation intact, and I chose to move on. So I had my studio, which um, my design studio, which is a very normal way of working in Europe where you have clients, you advise, consult for companies, some very quietly, um, some not so quietly. Um, depending on the needs of each client. And I continued um, advising other companies within, in Italy. Um, and then sadly, um, my husband got sick and uh, he got a very bad cancer and uh, he died within six months. And that was in 2010. Um, it basically turned my world upside down. Um, before he got sick, I had um, sold my book of um, A Life of Style to Monticelli Press, which was then owned by Random House, which was a book that I'd been working on for a couple of years. And had a couple of deals in America in conjunction with the launch of the book. And basically, <laughs> it was just... You know, you never know why things happen, when they do or where they do, uh, when they do, how they do. And but I've always been a big believer in destiny and fate. And um, I'm very God fearing. I uh, believe that there's 
definitely a greater force in the universe than us simple, you know, human beings. And I, I, I had to roll with it. And um, it was very hard because my, I have two boys and when Giacomo passed away, um, Max was 12 and Ben was nine. And um, I really wasn't sure what I should do. And I met with my friend, uh, mentor, Franca Sozzani, who was then the editor-in-chief of Italian Vogue. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about New York, but I don't know. Maybe I should stay here. And she said to me, you know, Rebecca, you have designed enough clothing to fill two lifetimes. You are such a great artist. Why don't you bring your fashion to your art and go to New York, change the environment for the boys, give them a fresh start and explore. You can start by doing stories with us. I have lots of ideas. I have to set up the .com for which, you know, in 2010, it was just just launched, I believe, in 2010, italianvogue.com. So, and, you know, I spoke with my families on both sides of the Atlantic, and um, I just felt that I wanted to go somewhere anonymous, like, you know, in Italy, um, I wanted the children not to be looked upon as poverini, like poor little boys who lost their daddy. I wanted them to have a fresh start and for us to cherish Giacomo, but be able to also move forward for them. And I had to take care of them now. So that's how I got back to America, Leslie. Um, and when was that? In 2010. Oh, so you came back in 2010. Okay. Exactly. So and that was after 20 years. Oh, of, my God. Yes. Incredible. 20 amazing years. Amazing. The best uh, amazing years. So let's talk about what you are doing now as part of your art and how your art morphed um, okay. during the pandemic, because it's quite amazing. And talk a little bit about what shows you'd had for your art just briefly before that sure. and where, because sure. I want people really to spend some time because I want them to go to your Instagram page and okay. really look at what you're doing, which is so incredibly amazing in my opinion. Thank you, Leslie. Um, okay. So what happened was I got back to New York. Um, the book had just been published. Um, we, I had done some collaborations here. I did a fast fashion collection uh, with Macy's and a few other projects like that. Um, I didn't really come back to New York thinking about designing here in New York. And, and, and I'll explain why only because I think it's important for people to understand. When you live in Italy, you're living in the bastion of the most creative manufacturing and artisans of the world. So for me as a fashion designer living in Italy, I had access to the most amazing craftsmen, factories, fabric developers. If I had an idea, I could go to the factory, develop the fabric, go to any place I wanted 
and have it made and developed. And sadly, in this country, we don't have all of that artisanship. We don't have, we're a young country, first of all. We don't have that mentality. And um, so for me to come back to New York and design the way I designed in Europe, I just didn't want to do it. And I, I knew that it w I would have to go back to Europe to do that. So I had to figure a way of using my passion for fashion, my art, my creativity, and figure out new ways of applying it. And um, storytelling was a very important part of that. Um, the book that I did, A Life of Style, which is available through Amazon, is a book um, that I illustrated. It's a book that doesn't teach you how to have style. It explains what style is. And in a simple one sentence description, style is your voice. And I wanted people to be able to understand what that meant that fashion wasn't style, fashion was a tool of style. So I decided to illustrate it in a very um, lighthearted, um, comical kind of way. Because I always think that when we can make fun of ourselves, we can grow. You know, it's like to accept things that we think are quirks or whatnot, it's better to grow with those things. If we take ourselves too seriously, the bar is just destroyed, okay? so. I like to make fun. I like to have a good time with myself. Um, and I like people who like to. You know, I think that when you can look at yourself through a more comical eye, you can grow. So uh, the book was meant to be informational, inspirational, um, and just something that would lift you to know that you're, you're okay, you're fantastic. And enjoy this book and take with it what you'd like, okay? And um, from there, I, I was doing, I was creating for Italian Vogue all kinds of really interesting projects. Like we created Vogue tarot cards. So on the new.com, people could go and do their tarots every day. Um, we did Vogue dolls where we would... Um, dress these women in, in multi-brands every day. It was really fascinating. I mean, Franca was the most inspirational um, fashion voice in the world and working with her was a privilege. Um, then other magazines started seeing what I was doing for Vogue and asked if I would do projects for them. So I, I started working with Marie Claire Italia and really incredible big spreads like um, they would call me and say we want to do a story on the old film Viaggio in Italia and um, we want to we want it'll be a big spread like 20 pages and um, we want to take each city around Italy and put a designer uh, look in that country to get pay tribute so there were really fascinating stories and it was just such a a pleasure to see how people embraced fashion illustration and storytelling. And since I was a designer, I understood how people's clothes were made, how they should be worn, how they should fit. So that was an asset when I would illustrate the stories because I understood when Prada did 
a certain cut to her coat. I saw the cut of the coat. So I knew how to illustrate it the way that she created it. Um, and um, from there, I started doing um, animations. Um, uh, it was so much fun animating my work, um, doing videos. Then brands would come to me and say, Rebecca, you know, we'd love you to do something for the launch of fall. So uh, a very established Italian company called Fratelli Rossetti called me and they said, we would love you to do some storytelling for us. So I created a story about there was a young lady who lived in a shoe, um, but she had many shoes. She had a flat in Paris and a high rise. You know? So each city where she lived had a different um a boot or a high heel or a stiletto or whatever. And we had the girls living in the shoes, fun things like this. Um, you guys were so far ahead. All we were doing was trying to figure out how to put content up. <laughs> that is so absolutely incredible. So you guys were way ahead with thinking about how to use the internet in yes. a way that did different things other than just passing along content. Oh, totally. Uh, it's, it was for me, I mean, I just love a creative challenge. But these I, are I, super I, creative. Like this is very different. This is a, just for everybody listening. This is super creative stuff. <laughs> this is not the average creative. So that you were very stoop, steeped in that, which is quite different. Yeah, it was a privilege, I have to say. Um, is that how you segued into your illustrations that you did during the pandemic then give that quick okay. bridge and so, we're pulling into the end here. Okay. So over the last 10 years, I've done many exhibits in New York, California, Miami, Tokyo, Milano, and it's always been a tribute to women, the empowerment of women, the strength of women and the imperfectly perfect beauty of women celebrating the uniqueness of each woman. And um, right before the, the pandemic broke out, um, I had just done a, a big campaign for the Fragrance Foundation. And uh, we were supposed to launch uh, with a big party and Bergdorf's and all of these, you know, uh, celebratory things you do with a campaign. And naturally everything fell apart. And here I was in my apartment with my partner and my, ch my children. Uh, well, actually, my one son was still in college down in Georgia and um, trying to figure out how to organize everything. And uh, it was a very frightening time. It was frightening for the entire world. Um, my family in Italy was in a very bad way. Um, the, the, the pandemic in Italy was nightmare. And um, so I was sketching, but when I started sketching, I was sketching what I was seeing, like women fighting for groceries, um, you know, glued to the television. Um, but I felt very unsatisfied with what I was doing. Um, I could hear these ambulances, which you may even hear right now. Um, uh, I heard the sirens going off. I was here in New York City and the sounds of the ambulances drove me crazy. And I felt so helpless and I wanted to do something. So I decided to go on Instagram and ask women, if you would like to share your story of what you're going through right now, 
um, I will do a portrait of you. And together we will document these epic times. And the letters just flew in. They flew in. They were magnificent, heart-wrenching, hysterical, humorous, uh, inspirational letters from six continents. And um, I was painting like, like a mad woman. I was really, I said, you know, 2020 in hindsight was the year of the nap because I didn't really sleep like, you know, 12 to eight. I was just painting, napping, painting, napping. And um, the first post was on March 31st and um, we're hitting 400 portraits um, the end of January. So it's, it's remarkable. The women are the most extraordinary ladies. Uh, all walks of life, all ages, you can imagine the diversity in backgrounds, race, religion, careers, in every sense. Um, but another amazing thing happened during the process. The women started connecting to each other and saying, you're not alone, I'm here. So from the first girl to the second girl to the third girl, it was a domino effect. So what happened, it became a sisterhood. It became a movement of women that really stayed connected and helped each other. And uh, during the, the group of women that we reached, one of the women was a nurse from Mount Sinai Hospital. And um, she asked me if I would help her honor nurses. And I said, nothing would give me greater pride. So within the 400 women, there are 46 um, Mount Sinai nurses that I did portraits of that are now currently on exhibit at the Guggenheim Pavilion in New York City. Um, I gifted the portraits to the hospital. They'll, it's a permanent gift. And um, these portraits will tour all the hospitals um, within the months ahead. And um, we, I do um, live Instagrams called the Stay Home Sisters Live. Um, where I give each woman a platform to talk about who she is, where she comes from, and uh, share what's important to her. If it's her business, if it's her family, if it's a cause, they're welcome to share it. And I think that people need a voice and people need to connect with each other. And that was my purpose this year. Um, I drew the women from their pictures on Instagram. Um, I tried to capture what I felt I knew about them from their letters and whatnot. And um, so, yes, I may not be designing clothes right now, but my fashion is very relevant into who I am as an artist. And the women are very, very excited about being part of this movement. So was your pivot, I mean, when we're talking to people who may have something similar creative in their background, Yes. And want to pivot and give back. For you, it sounds like it kind of just happened organically. Are there any sort of tips or tricks that you could tell people who are struggling? They feel they want to, you know, they want to have the voice out there. They want to help other women. They want to use their creativity. What would you suggest for them? Well, I think that 
it's very important. Yes, you are right in saying this happened organically. And it's wonderful when things can happen organically. And sometimes you have to move them through artificial means too. <laughs> Premeditated, I should say. Um, I think that we are living in the time of isms. We're not, we're living in a time of racism, ageisms, um, skinnyisms, fatisms. We're living in a time where, and maybe the last four years has provoked it. I'm not going to talk, but there's been a lot of hate provoked in the last four years. And a lot of judgment calls on people, who they are, how old are you, how young are you, how fat are you, how rich are you, how poor are you. And I think that we have to create a more respectful, balanced society. Um, and by doing that, I think we have to reevaluate how we do business, how we hire people, how we how we respect the world around us. Um, do we have a cause that's attached to our business? Do we have a charity that we believe that part of our profits can go into? Um, we we can't just make goods and sell goods anymore. There has to be a moral compass attached to it. Um, we expect a moral compass from our politicians. We expect a moral compass from our children. And I think we have to have a moral compass in the way that we work. And that's a very important thing, I think, if you want to survive going forward in the world. Um, we talk about the environment. We talk about all of these things. They are our obligations. They're not just the obligations of a few people. We all have to assume that. So I think that when you want to start thinking about pivoting and, and going after your things that you really would love to do, but are unable to do, you have to think about how you're going to approach what you do. Um, I think this is a very important thing right now, Leslie. Um, I think that if you're in a, so many of us, I think are in jobs that we don't really enjoy, but we're obliged to do because we have family responsibilities, we have financial responsibilities, or we're just comfortable that we accept it. And as each day goes by, we don't realize that Maybe we could be doing something else, but it's so comfy. Why change it? But then you get mad at yourself. You get depressed. You get sad. You, you know, you, you don't really think about the possibilities. Um, I think this past year I've witnessed a lot of people reevaluating their lives. Um, they have really reassessed. It's been an incredible pause in that in that regard and uh, many of the women that are in the stay home sisterhood and anyone who watches who would like to be a stay home sister can still become one um but i think that you really have to ask yourself is this the life that i want to live and is my work really what i'm doing is what i really love doing or is there something else I can evolve it to? And how can I do it with 
financial responsibilities and who will pay attention to me. And I think that insecurity creates a lot of the block. That's interesting. It's a, it's, I, I agree with you. And I think that it is such a, it is a huge time of reevaluation. I don't think, I think there's going to be a portion of people out there who are forced to just stay doing what they do, but maybe hopefully they can find some satisfaction in a, something else that they do to give back or be part of something bigger. I think there's a yearning. I think it's very clear that if we are not connected to each other, intertwined and giving back to each other, it's going to be disastrous. And I think a lot of people, don't you, do you find a lot of people are saying they don't want to get back on that wheel the way it was, even when we've all got our vaccinations and can, does everybody want to do that again? No, I think that there, this has been a turnaround year. I don't, we will definitely not go back to the way we used to live. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine it. First of all, I think if this was a one month, two month thing, then maybe we would have. Um, but I think this, it, it, it was like having an infected abs- abscess, you know, mm-hmm. that just mm-hmm. was building up, building up and it, it blew up. Yeah. And um, I think that, we had way too much of too many things. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I can just speak from, let's say, a fashion point of view. Designers were creating way too much product, yeah. way too many collections. Now they're filling, filling landmines, you know, with, you know, clothes, you know. I mean, it, I mean, landfill. Ooh. They're just putting landfills. in landfills. I'm yeah. sorry. Landfills. That's all right. Not oh, landmines. <laughs> it's early for me. <laughs> landfill but yes uh, you know they there was how so many collections so many you know they're too much too much for the world to support and and so much waste and do you think we'll go back to investment dressing or in buying pieces that really matter and passing things down and honoring older things not just us people wise but do you think yes. that stu- older stuff is going to come back in any way as being well, I, meaningful? I, I'm a big believer in upcycling and, and vintage. I think we have so many incredible things from the past that we can still uh, resuscitate and, and um, you know, bring back to life. But at the same time, people do want to buy new. But mm-hmm. I think, again, we have to think about how are we spending our money? Where, wh- how are we investing it? I mean, for me, I would much rather have a great piece rather than 10 not so great pieces. Yeah. Um, I think that the way, I think this has taught us many things and it's going to be more than a half an hour conversation for us to even go there. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're at the end already. So <laughs> we're going to have to do a second one of these for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much to um, uh, the after effects of 2020. I don't even think we can even comprehend right now. Yeah. Uh, it's so vast and it's so deep and so profound. 
Well, Rebecca, thank you. We are way past our end, though I'm going to leave it at this, and we're going to keep this as a long one because I think people are going to want to hear all you have to say because it's so amazing. So thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your honesty, and thank you for doing what you did. And and I want everybody to follow you on Instagram. Is it just, I can't remember, is it just- Rebecca Moses Official. Rebecca Moses Official. It's M-O-S-E-S. Yes, Great. exactly. Yes. So follow yes. Rebecca on Instagram and that's where you'll be open to her world and read the stories um, of all those fabulous women. And, and they can, as you said, they can submit themselves as well. How do they do that? Um, just send me a direct message, a letter of no more than 2000 symbols, which means letters and punctuations. That's the limit on Instagram. And if you do not have photographs of yourself on your IG page, then send me two to three photographs, not more, just two or three clear photos. And, um, and you can become a stay home sister. Awesome. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Oh my God. Incredible. Thank you so much. Leslie, it's been a privilege as always. So I hope you enjoyed this unusual discussion about art and fashion and about pivoting in a pandemic. And I hope that you will follow us um, on our podcast. And also, if you like us, please pass this along to friends who need inspiration for pivoting in a pandemic or for reinventing themselves. We have done over 100 interviews so far, and I hope that we are the inspiration and the also the tactical points that push people to do what it's at their heart's desire. And I think right now is a time that we need that more than ever. So pass us along, leave us, leave us a note, tell us uh, what you think. And we hope to see you next time. Come on over to the coveyclub.com. That is where we're hanging out. We have a wonderful app. We have all kinds of instructional classes every week that we're doing and you can learn anything you want you can do anything you want and as I like to say it ain't over till you say it's over take care